Welcome back to 10,000 No's. We are sporadically re-releasing some of our past episodes throughout the summer, and today's guest was one of the chosen ones. Because these episodes are older, please forgive any out-of-date references. These re-releases have been chosen because they are either some of our most heavily downloaded episodes, relevant to some current event, or just a conversation with someone we deem to be a badass that we felt should be reintroduced to our newer listeners so that their pearls of wisdom are not buried forever. Either way, we hope you enjoy. Here it is. What we do here is go back, 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 back. It does no service to creating value for people where I came from if I won't say where I came from. And so nobody thought any thought this movie was going to work, and it did. One of my greatest struggles as a journalist is that I'm an emotional person and I'm a sensitive person. This is Matthew Del Negro, and you're listening to 10,000 No's. Guys, this podcast is built on the premise that hearing stories of struggle from people who most of us just think have it made is a way for the rest of us to realize we're not alone. If you've already subscribed on iTunes and you like what you hear, thank you. And please share it with others. You can take a screenshot of your phone while you're listening, post it on your social media, tag at Maddie Dell on Instagram or at Matthew Del Negro on Twitter and Facebook, email it to friends, shout it from your rooftop, beat people up on the street and force them to listen, whatever. If you can leave an iTunes review, boom, I love it. Either way, I appreciate the support. I'm glad you're listening, even if this is your first one. And I hope you're as inspired by my guests as I am. We are not particularly well-spoken. We are not particularly good-looking. We are not particularly intelligent. We are, generally speaking, a B-minus across the board. (laughs) My guest today is writer, director, actor, producer, Mark Duplass. Many of you know Mark as the prolific filmmaker who, along with his brother Jay, has managed to jump the gap from indie darling to more mainstream fare while also creating series like HBO's Room 104 and Togetherness. As of May 8th, Mark and Jay can now add author to their long list of talents as Random House publishes their memoir, Like Brothers, everywhere books are sold. Mark and I get down and dirty about collaborating with your brother without killing him, circumnavigating the Hollywood system, overcoming a lack of resources to create a mini studio, and betting on yourself. Mark Duplass. One of the reasons I... I'm really interested to talk to you is that you kind of, you came from nothing in the film world in terms of like, there were no connections Mm -hmm. really. Uh, Grew up in New Orleans. uh, You were in Austin, Texas is kind of when, why don't you run us through a little bit of that? But um, we don't, we don't have to go like whole biography, but. Yeah, no, I mean, I, uh, I grew up in the suburbs of New Orleans in this uh, little spot called Metairie that was, Wide streets and uh, affordable housing and and riding bikes and it was very um, calm and easy and 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 because of that removed from anything that might have led to a filmmaking career you know uh, the artists in New Orleans were like predominantly. Um, black male musicians over the age of 75. And those were my heroes growing up, you know? And that, those were my, like, my role models. Like, oh, that, 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 that's what it means to be an artist. I would watch movies on TV and be like, I don't know who makes those, but that's not in the realm of possibility for me. Um, and then I think the, the first thing that got us 
interested in making movies was was sort of the advent of of HBO coming in in the mid '80s and seeing all these like crazy like hard hitting adult dramas <laughs> playing during the day on HBO like when we were just watching like you know, ordinary people <laughs> and um, Sophie's Choice yeah. and Kramer versus Kramer. And all of our friends were watching Star Wars and we were not. We were just into those movies. Um, and and then our dad brought a video camera home and then we started picking that up. And that's what How kind old of were started. You at that point? I think Jay was 12. I was like eight. Okay. And um, because of that four-year gap, Jay was really our our sort of fearless leader. I would just religiously follow him anywhere, and he was very good to me, very kind and welcoming, and in a way that most North American males in that age, like he was a true unicorn. You know, every little brother wants to hang out with the older brother, but what older brother wants to hang out with his little brother? And he right. did it. And so I was just kind of like his little slave. I would just like be in the movies and like do whatever he wanted to do. And and we just made tons and tons of shitty little movies. Um, nothing, you know, there was nothing, nothing in our work that you would look at like and be like, boy, those guys really have something, you know, <laughs> like, like you hear those stories of like the Coen brothers and Sam Raimi growing up making movies and Spielberg. And you actually look at those movies and you're like, yep. Yeah. They're geniuses. You can see it. Like we were, it was all just terrible. You know what? Well, first of all, you're probably being, you know, nope. humble nope. too, but maybe not. Nope. But I think that is kind of part of the charm and part of the uh, reason that you guys have kind of become this. Um, I feel like people in the indie world look to you because you really, you re- like it's 10,000 no's. I, you really worked through a lot of uh, process, a lot of um, rejection. I mean, you kind of, you, it seems like you hit it early on from the outside, mm-hmm. but I know from the inside, it's not that way. And when you're saying you're starting at, you know, 12 and eight, you yeah. know that there was a lot of trial and error. Yeah. And I think that, you know, that first point you brought up about people, look to us and they really do like all you know false modesty aside like we we are for a certain group of young filmmaker like the success story I think and and I if I'm being truly honest with myself I think what that is is that again all false modesty aside and not this is no, no bullshit like we are not particularly well-spoken. We are not particularly good-looking. We are not particularly intelligent. We are, generally speaking, a B-minus across the board. (laughs) And yet we just fucking killed ourselves and worked our asses off and found a way to, like, push that boulder up the mountain. And I think people look at us, and I think rightfully so, and I think if those guys can do it, like, I think anybody can do this. Yeah, well, you have something that's very funny and, and humbling. Funny because it's true. <laughs> but, but I think there is something to, you have this, uh, you, the, if if you're listening and you haven't seen Mark's speech um, from 2015 from South by Southwest, uh, you should Google it. If you're a filmmaker, you need to Google it. If you're an actor who feels like you're not getting enough roles, you need to Google it. Um, and he covers a lot of this stuff, so we don't have to go through mm-hmm. all of it. But that it's that... It, it's that that just pragmatic approach, I think, that you had 
um, that you just said, okay, well, we're just going to keep doing it and we're going to course correct as we go. And to, to yeah. tell us a little bit, I love the story of the first film that you did when you raised like 65 grand. Yeah. And it was. It yeah. Was, I mean, our journey as artists was like, um, it was pretty tough, you know, um, you know, from getting that camera at 12 and eight years old, we were also musicians and, and we did that through our teenage years. And, and I spent a lot of time touring, doing like kind of overly earnest singer songwriter <laughs> acts and 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 my ethic was still the same like no one wants to give me a record deal and and they by the way I wasn't that good they shouldn't have <laughs> so I like made my own records I pressed a thousand CDs I you know I bought a used conversion van I booked tours for myself around the country and I, and I just made it work you know and I learned a lot by doing that about the process of becoming an artist and how to empower yourself um and at the same time, we were still sort of uh, dreaming a little bit that, God, it would be so cool to make movies. Um, and we went to film school. We went to film school at the University of Texas in Austin and, and got about halfway through school and realized, like, I think we know enough now to kind of go on our own and, um, and, and do what we want to do. We were pretty confident that we could, we could make something. So we started this film editing business and... Uh, luckily enough, through that, we could freelance enough, make our money, and explore our, our sort of artistic work at night. And and in doing that process, we made quite a bit of money doing this corporate documentary for this company. It was a long story, but we ended up with like, you know, about $70,000 of profit in the bank for us. Really? Yeah. So we were like, well, shit, this is amazing. Um, how, did you, how did you pull that you off? You know, do you remember like in the big dot-com boom in the late 90s? Austin was a big a part of, of that, you know, and there was a Fortune 500 company called Garden.com. And, and, you know, we went to them and we we're like, guys, let's, uh, we'll make a documentary. It'll be really cool. And, you know, they were like, how much does it cost? And we thought we were pulling a figure out of our ass that like no one would ever pay for. We're like, it's, you know, it's going to be $500,000. And they were like, oh, sure. And just cut us a check, you know? Really? So we hired all our <laughs> friends to work on it, grossly overpaid everyone and still walked away with like $70,000. Um, so, so Jay and myself and our, our editor, Jay Doobie, who's really one of our core collaborators, we got together and we decided we're going to make the big feature film. And we wrote this movie that was kind of a derivative of the Rocky storyline called Vince Del Rio about a runner from uh, the border of Texas that I was going to play the lead in. And um, and he the story was he, he cheats um, in an Olympic trial qualifying race um, and gets a chance to go to the Olympic trials and then, you know, can he redeem himself kind of thing. So, um, you know, we gathered up all the best people in town, hired all the best crew members, put all the money into the budget, went down to Del Rio, shot the movie for three weeks. Something didn't feel quite right, but we didn't really know what making a feature film was. So we weren't that alarmed. But when we screened the first rough cut for people um, and saw their faces, like we knew, like we had made a steaming pile of donkey turds and and there was no salvaging it and that, and that was basically rock bottom for us yeah. which was okay. how old were you at this point at this point we're like 24 and 28 okay so this is not a joke anymore yeah this yeah. is not like cute artists anymore like we're on our way to a sad life yeah. um and all of our friends we went to this jesuit high school in new orleans they're all 
killing it working at Goldman Sachs, making like $250,000. And we were like these cool artist guys in high school. And now we're just fucking losers, basically. (laughs) So, um, so we, you know, we're like, well, rather than try to save the film, which we knew was going to be tough, we just decided to bury it and write off the loss. And, 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 you know, one day Jay and I were sitting on his couch and in his apartment in Austin. And, um, you know, we're watching Coen Brothers movies and angry that we're not them. And and I've always been a bit of the instigator in our relationship. So I just said, we got to we got to do something. Let's make a movie. You know, we're going to make a movie today. I don't know what it's about. We're going to make a movie. You know, and Jay is much more <laughs> pragmatic. And he says, well, we don't have a camera. We don't have anything. I said, I don't give a shit. We got mom and dad's video camera. He's like, we don't, we don't have a crew. Nobody likes us anymore. We you know, it's like, I don't give a shit. Uh, so I was like, I'm going to 7-Eleven and I'm buying a mini DV tape. And when I get back, you have a movie idea for us. Um, And so when I came back, sure enough, Jay said, I don't really have an idea, but something happened to me when we were making Vince Del Rio. I was trying to record the outgoing greeting of, of the message for casting, and I was trying to get it right, and I couldn't represent it right. And it took me about 150 tries, and I almost had a nervous breakdown doing it. And something about that just clicked. And we didn't know what it was, but it felt very right. So rather than take the time to script it out and raise money and get a crew, I was like, put the tape in the camera. I'm going out the door. You film me. I'm going to improvise it. And we'll just see what happens. And we shot one 20-minute take that was improvised of me trying to perfect my answering machine greeting. Um, and, and it was – it felt right. Everything that felt wrong on Vince Del Rio felt right this time. And we showed it to some people and they were like, this is amazing. Our friend David Zellner, who was a much more accomplished filmmaker at the time, helped us edit it down to to eight minutes. And on a lark, we submitted it to Sundance, our $3 short film, uh, and it got accepted. And that was the beginning of our career. And what I realize now, that thing that Jay did, that, that Jay cracked in that moment was the desperation of being a white male in his mid-20s who was so scared he wasn't going to be something and trying to put forth who he was in the world was at times very desperate and very funny, but it was very us. It was our sensibility. It was our sense of humor. It wasn't us trying to rip off Rocky or be the Coen brothers. We tapped into us. And that is what people responded to in that film, which is, you can't really call it a film because it was the ugliest, worst sounding film ever to play Sundance. It had a dead pixel in the center of it from the camera. (laughs) Um, But that didn't matter. Um, And that ethic today uh, has been what we have essentially followed. Yeah. I love that story. And, but what, what my question for you is, so that's about trusting your gut, finding your voice. Yet you also have, from our conversations, you have this great producerial mind where even kind of like, uh, we, we've spoken about this, where you kind of, you, you will know, I, I pitched you something that I was thinking about and you're like, yeah, they're not really doing sensitive white guy movies. <laughs> and you kind of, you know, you kind of have- Moonlight this, just won the Oscar, Matt. Uh, let's, so, yeah. you know, you have a, a uh, you kind of work both ways, mm. it seems. It seems like, so there's this, you seem, how, 
How would you say if you were advising you know, a young filmmaker, you're going, mm-hmm. okay, do what you really want to do. Do your sweet spot. Yeah. And then they tell you what their sweet spot is and you're like, yeah. Yeah, that's tough. That's yeah, I mean, it's so obviously- how do you a, kind of uh, juggle that? It's a delicate dance. I, I talk a lot about reverse engineering your yeah. art. Um, and I think that that is important to have someone in your relationship, um, whether it is you, because you have light, left brain and right brain, which I was lucky enough to have, um, or if you find yourself to be one or the other, get yourself a partner who really occupies the other space. Um, and I think that the major problem that I see that people encounter in the film business and the music business, almost in any entrepreneurial business that has got a mountain to climb in front of you, is that um, people get stuck on an ideal of what they want to do and why that particular industry uh, won't allow them to do it and they can't overcome it. And and my way of thinking is try not to think that way because you'll just be miserable trying to get some preconceived idea of what you want done. But what you can do is try to find the holes and find the niches that aren't being filled. And if you can find a way to make your creativity work inside of those buckets, inside of those gaps, um, which is essentially what a startup mentality is. You know, yeah. what are the pain points? Let me fill the pain points. If you can look at whatever industry you're in and still maintain your creative rhythms inside of that, that then I think you have a, a real chance of success. And that, look, I get it. I think some people listening to this are saying like, why are you th- putting business first before art? My argument is, if you are smart enough to identify the gap in the business, build that little bunker for yourself, then click out of that brain once the bunker is built and go right into your creative brain and say, yeah. how do I fill this bunker? Yeah. Um, you will have a real chance of success and happiness because the truth is I entered the film business at a time when the Fox Searchlight movie that I thought was what I wanted to do, like those movies like Sideways and Little Miss Sunshine, those were dying and they weren't working. So most of the people in my generation came in and they just started complaining. They said, oh shit, we just got here and now the business we want to do is dying. I, and I kind of saw that like, well, I can't make the $7 million movie the way I want to make it. But if I make the $100,000 movie cheaply, work my ass off, willing to do six jobs, share all the profits with people because they've worked for so cheap, then we go take that movie and sell it. We can go sell it for a couple million dollars and we have some sustainability. So I found a little corner of the sandbox that worked for me. So to your point of uh, why a protosorial brain or, or, or where does business fit in with art, I think it's critical and becoming more and more critical um, to learn how to do something that's pragmatic and to, and to build a box that works for the business first and then fill it with your creative next. Yeah, which is kind of what you guys did with Puffy Chair, really, yeah. where you, you, know, you had no money and you said, we have a van, we've got two apartments in Brooklyn. We went and we found these, what did you, you found identical like you had not, it, it was not going to be the puppy chair until you found. And I had, I those said, two oh my chairs, God, these two right? chairs are, this is $500 for the pair. And, and they were in like and a thrift these, shop. And this or is our set piece. This yeah. is, our, it was, it was in a furniture store that was closing down, you know? I mean, that's great. The, the film was called The Puppy Chair. It, it really kind of, from, from my perspective, that's what, when I became aware of you guys. And like, I still have that. I still have that with your, you know, the commentary on Yeah. It. You know, that, and what year was that? That was 2005. It was two years after we had made that first short film, This Is John. And it was, um, you know, 
a time when we had agents and and I think that they were feeling like, why are you going and making a $10,000 movie on your own? We're here. We'll help you package a movie, you know, we'll help you make your next thing. And then we had seen people wait around for five years and not yeah. get a chance to make it. So, so we went out and just said, well, we're going to take the same, this is John ethic, make this thing on our own and, and take it out to sell it. But still at that time, I thought Sundance slash independent filmmaking was a stepping stone to get to Hollywood. Um, and it wasn't until I got to Hollywood and made our first studio movie that I realized, actually, the Sundance world, the film festival world, independent filmmaking world is an ecosystem that I can actually survive in unto myself. And and it's actually just more enjoyable for me and what I, what I like better. Yeah. What was that studio? Was that Jeff? That was Cyrus was oh, our oh, first Cyrus. studio okay. movie. And, and we got to make that movie, long story short, I'm really proud of that movie. I got to make exactly the movie I ma- I wanted to make, but it almost fucking killed us trying to make it. Really? In what? In what? Because way? look, I'm really close with the Fox Searchlight execs that I worked with, and they're friends of mine. But like, we went kind of head to head on that movie a lot of times, and part of it was because Jay and I were young and naive and didn't understand that like when someone's spending seven million dollars you have to make them comfortable and communicate with them and we were kind of just like we're just gonna go do our thing like we do so we were naive but likewise they said we want to hire you to do your special thing that you do as long as you kind of do it the way we do do it too you know (laughs) and 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 so we were uh, no one's real fault, but we were kind of a, a mismatch there. And and the long story short of that process for me was I can do this, but it drains me of my soul points, <laughs> which is what I call the sort of equilibrium of when is your soul healthy and when is it not? And you only have a certain amount of soul points unless you are actively building them back up. And so it takes me 80 of my 100 soul points to make Cyrus correctly and I know I'll burn out by the time I'm 40. Yeah. But if I make these little movies with just me and my homies the way we do them, um, it actually grows my soul points. Yeah. Um, and and luckily enough for me, I did arrive at the industry at a time in the mid-2000s when um, if you could make a good-looking movie for cheap and bring it to Sundance, you could really sell it for a profit. It's actually not that way right now anymore. Yeah. I'm very, very lucky I got in when I got in. I really believe that Puffy Chair is a really good movie, very interesting. I don't think it gets into Sundance in 2018. Not even, doesn't even get in? No way. Wow. Yeah. So I, I'm lucky. I got a brand now that I've built, and I can continue to go out to do it. You yeah. know, but you, but you, it's tough you know, now. that's what what I love about your story is that you know that that phrase you kept coming back to in that speech, the, the cavalry isn't coming. Yeah, and it seems like every time you had that opportunity, when whether it's you know new agents or an exec is kind of dangling mm-hmm. this <laughs> shimmering object, yeah. like come here, Mark, you know, go, yeah. go, go get this, you. You seem like in most cases, at least, maybe all cases, you said, no, I'm going to bet on myself. And, yeah, and I, I did. And on Jay and I, you know, and yeah. we can t- I want to talk about that collaboration. Yeah, and yeah. I mean, to your point of that, I, I, you know, I think about what you're doing here and I'm thinking about what 10,000 knows means and like, what does that mean to me? You know, and and the, the more I think about it, and if I'm truly honest, is that 
I actually have gotten to a place in the last 10 years where I, I don't allow for the space for anyone to possibly tell me a no. I just try to get into the place where I can just drive this ship on my own so that it doesn't come. In my early days, I sent out demos when I was 21 and said, will you give me a record deal? No, 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 no. I would get all the no's and then I'd say, oh, fuck it. I'll just go do it myself, you know? And then early days in this industry, will you greenlight my movie? No, 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 no. Now I'm just like, fuck those guys. I'm just going to do it. And now look, I realize I'm speaking from an extremely fortunate position. I have enough cash to greenlight my own projects mostly now and do what I want to do. But I would still argue that if you're 14 years old and you're listening to this and you're thinking, yeah, Mark Duplass, easy for you to say because you're Mark Duplass at this point with a reputation and cash. I'll call bullshit on that right away because I was exactly where you were. And you have an iPhone probably or you know someone with an iPhone and you have iMovie and you have GarageBand. You have everything They're actually in a better position You're in a so much better position than I was to go out and make a movie for zero money with your existing materials. And it could win the Academy Award because we are at that level with the democratization of filmmaking. There's tons and tons of stuff out there and most of it is garbage. That's the downside. The great side is nobody is stopping you except for your own creativity. And that's tough to face and I deal with that a lot too. Um, but man, it's it's the best place to be as a micro-budget filmmaker right now. Yeah, yeah. And you and I have, have spoken about this before, um, kind of the path I took, the path you took. And, you know, as I was kind of getting ready in the last couple of days to come over here and talk to you, I started <laughs> thinking, I'm going, God, it's, I, I am envious of the, the, empire it's like this mini empire it's a, ba- it's a baby saying, empire you know, yeah. it's, it's a but it's it's yours and it's it's kind of uh one of the things that i'm i'm most proud of with this podcast it's mine it's yeah. a tiny little thing but it's mine and and you you know whether you know it or not maybe i told you but you and i worked together for the first time on july 3rd of this of 2017 mm, yeah and i had i had the idea for this for a while um, I had gotten mics, I had gotten this whole little setup and I was really hemming and hawing. And I think the biggest thing that held me back was not technical. And this is kind of your point. I think it was not technical. It was being afraid to put my voice out there. And, and really we had a conversation that first day we worked and we talked about you and Jay and, and how, um, well, you could tell it better than I, what your family says, if, if Jay were left to his own volition. Yeah. He would make like three quarters of the you know most incredible movie. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and I would make a hundred <laughs> shitty movies every year. <laughs> but yeah. we talked about that, and you said just get it out there. And the next day, I went out. I'm sure it was influenced by that conversation, but I went out. My family was on the East Coast, and went out and got on the mic, hit record, and just started riffing. And that 17 minutes of riffing is the first episode of this podcast. Yeah, there's something to the stumbling through it and the learning on the job that I really believe in. And I think that, you know, at least for me right now, um, the ignorance, ignorance is a tough word, but the, the basics of the ignorance that you had about what it takes to make a podcast, the ignorance that I had about what it takes to actually make 
a real good-looking movie when I made This Is John really played in my favor. There were some shaggy edges that actually read as uniqueness and originality um, because I didn't know what I was doing. And there are still some things today, I don't know, I could not tell you what a lens does and looks like on a camera. I got no clue. So I just pull out a 35. I'm just like, I don't know what the fuck that means. And I used to be embarrassed about that. And now I'm just like, eh. That's how I am, and that's 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 what I do. I, I don't know how to work budgeting software. I write my budgets out on pieces of paper, yeah. and then I give them to people, and they and they fix them. I think that 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 fear uh, of just like getting into something because you're not educated enough about it, or you're not there enough. I would argue, you, not only should you not listen to that because you should look at that as not a hindrance, but it can actually be something that becomes part of your uniqueness and your edge. So again, you're 15 years old. You're like. I don't know what the 180 degree line of cinematography is, so I can't shoot this. I would say, no, you're going to do something instinctually with that camera that might break a new way of shooting that all of us who know the rules can't do anymore because we're stuck. And and embrace that, I think is, I don't know, that's, that's kind of what I'm interested in these days. Yeah, I love that. Um, tell me a little bit about your dad. I feel like he, his business mind, mm-hmm. right, has had uh, an influence on you. It's huge. Yep. How would you... Um, yeah, you don't. I don't want to be too reductive about it, but in yeah. general, you know, my mother is very, very creative and extremely sensitive and empathetic, and, and, and my father was a civil trial attorney in New Orleans and, and ran his own firm and did his own thing, and... Um, and uh, he's just extremely pragmatic and, and business-minded. Um, and I feel like the, those two people live inside of me and they're at war all the time, which wreaks havoc on my personal life, which has been very good for filmmaking. Um, and, you know, I, I think that we talked a little bit about um, sort of why it's important to be pragmatic about what you want to make and, and do things that are, you know... Um, in consideration of the business model first, you know, but the one thing that I really, that I really got from him was like, if you keep things at a certain price point where you're not stretching yourself too far and you're not so big that if you fail once, your, your whole empire is going to come down. Um, no one can stop you from being sustainable. So I've learned this thing, which again, I, I take some criticism on this and I think it's legitimate. I never swing for the fences. I swing for first base every time. Okay. I, when I'm going out to make a movie, I say, what is the worst case scenario? If we make this movie and it's no good and the market's bad, the least amount that I could sell it for, I come up with that number. That's the budget of the movie. So that no matter what happens, I can get it back and we can live to fight another day. You're like the Warren Buffett of filmmaking. That's it. I'm I'm yeah. I'm compounding. I'm going through the drive-through at McDonald's and Don't myself, lose money. Don't yeah. lose money, dude. And I just keep hitting singles all day long. And though what that does is it keeps me creatively satisfied. It keeps the business financially sound, which is important so we can stay alive. But then something random happens, which is one out of every 10 of those singles, first baseman bungles it, throws it to second, way overthrows it, guy rounds third base, goes in the stands, and you got an infield home run. And you couldn't have predicted why our last documentary series, Wild Wild Country, just blew up. 
It's a docu-series, you know? That was a single. And it reached people in a way that... And you had no idea. And I had no idea why it would or or how it would. And and Room 104 is a show show that's all set in a motel room, but it reached people. Um, And I am not in a position to predict what's going to be a hit and what is not. So all I do is I just stand at that batter's box and I just give it a nice two-thirds swing and I get that fucker in play. And it's really worked for me. I got a whole baseball metaphor here, man. I didn't even know it. It's really coming. It's really coming together. Um, and, um, and then secondarily, you know, this is just something I learned, but I think it's been helpful is that um, when you, when you run a business like that, I guess, or when you conduct it, um, you never really shake the underdog quality. Um, and people still want to lift you up. We're in a very fortunate position. We're like, yeah, there are some people who look at us and they're just like, all right, enough white dudes in this business. And they kind of want to get rid of us. But generally speaking, we're just like trying to make our stuff. We're trying to support filmmakers and, and people really like want us to win. Um, and I think that that's important as an artist that if you show up with the $10,000 short film, that thing better be fucking perfect because otherwise they're going to chop you at the knees for spending 10K in a short. If you show up with a $3 movie with a dead pixel in a center that you made with your brother in your kitchen, if it's a B minus, you're a hero. So ironic that they, what was it, Jack Del Rio? You became. Yeah, Vince Jack, Del Rio. Uh, Vince yeah, Del Rio. Yeah, yeah, you, yeah. you were the Rocky of. Totally. Yeah. Sundance. People are like, oh, look at these guys did it with a dead pixel. <laughs> raise them up. Let's raise them up. Yeah. You know, and we're still the guys with the dead pixel to a certain degree. You know, yeah. um, and I really think that that's that's. I don't know. I think it's important to. Uh, it's not really a humility thing. It's just a um, bite-sized chunks and things that you know you can make. Because uh, I just see so many artists and filmmakers just embittered and heartbroken because they had a vision to make a $13 million movie about this. And I look at them and I say, I feel terrible for you that you aren't able to make that movie. But at the same time, it's kind of your own fucking fault because you haven't made a good movie yet. And you want to cast, you want a $13 million to make a movie with no stars. Nobody's going to give that to you. You're not ready for it. You, you frankly don't quote unquote deserve that yet because you haven't earned it. Go make your $10,000. Go make your $100 movie and build yourself to it. Yeah. And that that really is what that that South by Southwest speech was all about, was yeah. those people that have been coming to us over the years and saying, hey, man, can I take you out to lunch? Can I take you out to coffee and pick your brain for the things? And I was like, I got to spend some time with my kids. I can't have coffee with everybody. But like, so I just laid it out yeah. in like an hour long speech. Yeah, and it was very honest. The path, it was, it was, you know? You know, it was inspiring, but also brutally honest. Yeah. I mean, there was... Um, at one point, uh, an actress got up and asked something like, what, you know, how do we, I'm an actress struggling and what do I do? And you were kind of like, hey, you're in the same boat. Yeah. Make your own, you know, be a writer, actor. It yeah. is, you know, and it's not the only path. I've seen it go other ways. Like I want, we made our first movie with Colin Trevorrow. We made Safety Not Guaranteed. And then he literally went and made Jurassic World right after it. And he was totally happy and he's great. Yeah. So I'm not saying it's the only way. I'm just saying it's the it's the only way. I know to do it where you literally don't have to get lucky. You you can yeah. control everything. Yeah. Yeah. And what about criticism? Because before you just kind of said, yeah. oh, yeah, some people, you know, will criticize this or say, like, how do you view um, 
the haters out there, or if there is anybody, you do have a lot of fans. You do have people, but, but, but I'm pretty lucky. Are you? But do you, when you hear someone, do you just go, yeah, not everybody's going to like us? And On my healthy days, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. But like, of course, there are other days where you like get something and you're just like, oh man, that's not fair. And then I'm about to like respond. I'm like, ah, that guy's a troll. Don't do it, you know? Yeah. Um, but I, I don't know. I guess the way that I feel is like, if someone has a problem overall with our philosophy <clears throat> as a company, it's probably their problem because generally speaking of all the selfish artists in the world who are trying to make stuff about their own vision of which I am one of those people. Um, we tend to do a little bit better for mentoring, for bringing up younger filmmakers, for giving people chances for, you know, like our whole, every department head on room 104 is under the age of 30 because we promote people and we give them opportunities. Yeah. All these young, so I had Doug Emmett on, on yeah, this show. I mean, for, dude, yeah, he was, he shot and, it and then he was directing. And, and, and in fact, we had to kick him out cause he got too old. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, and, um, and I would just say that, you know, like we're, we're doing our best over here to be like, uh, a good presence in the filmmaking world, you know? So eh, I have a healthy ego, I think really is what it comes down to it. And, if I have 18 people giving some praise and two people giving me some shit, I can kind of let it go. usually do pretty well. And, and that goes with our project load as well. Like we're running anywhere from 10 to 15 projects at a time. I'm lucky that I'm of the personality where if two of them are ailing or hurting, I'm not one of those people who's like, that's going to take down everything. Actually, I win on the law of averages. My brain's just like, yeah, look how well these other 13 are going. You know, yeah. it's going to be part of the thing. So, yeah. But again, that's on a good day. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's got it. It's, you always get it at a certain point. You know, you feel like shit and it happens, but. Yeah. Now, what about uh, when we were working together, I, I had said to you, um, you know, you were there as an actor on Goliath. And I said, how is it for you when you are on a set? that you are not the writer, director, yeah. producer, actor. And you say, and I, I was thinking you might say like, yeah, it kind of bums me out because I want to yeah. tell them this or this. And you said, no, it's 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 kind of a great, it's like I'm the drunk uncle who gets to come over and play <laughs> with the kids, be fun, go home and let the parents clean up. I still feel that way. Um, and I think that as long as I'm in a place where I'm having good conversations and where the people are being nice to each other, I can actually even divorce myself from having uh, a need for that art itself to be good. Um, I would love it to be good, you yeah. know, but at the end of the day, when I'm on set as an actor, I get to meet you. We can develop a relationship and meet a guy like Larry Trilling, who's just so great and supportive of us and easy to be around. Yeah. He just made it so nice for so us. Collaborative. So collaborative yeah. and complimentary and, yeah. and like the food was good and my trailer was <laughs> nice and I got paid pretty well and I got to use some of that money for all my other things. Yeah. Like, Jesus Christ, yeah. it's the greatest job. And you had a great character. I and mean, I can't wait yeah. for people to see you in, um, that, in that role. I think it's a whole. Yeah, that, that role was really fun for me. I mean, that was just wild. And and I still don't know. I've told my mom she's not allowed to see it. Um, I still don't know what, to, what that's going to be like when it comes out. But I, I've, I'm kind of, again, I'm a little bit divorced from that. It that, that doesn't have to be great for me to have looked back to look back and say that was really worthwhile i yeah. got everything i needed out of that experience yeah i'm i'm good you know yeah. and the true creative fulfillment comes from when i'm 
parenting my own projects here. But even honestly, that, since you and I were last hanging out, has changed a bit, you know? It was like, we were close more like maybe eight or nine months ago on that set. Yeah. Um, Even now, I'm starting to find myself just ever so slowly, like I'm 41 now, my kids are six and 10. Like, dude, on a Friday night, we make pizza and watch Austin Powers one and two. Yeah. And then go for a night swim and then do it all over again on Saturday. And I'm starting to be like, all right, I've made like 40 things and I got this time with my family yeah. now. So that I'm was my f- very next question because I know you are a family man and time management yeah. is something that I'm starting to pull back a yeah. little bit. Something has happened. I feel like I almost shouldn't even be saying this now because it's so early stages. And who knows, in three weeks, I might just be like, go into my standard workaholic mode again. Something is shifting in me a little bit and it it really became clear to me the way that Wild Wild Country worked, which was such a special collaboration with the the Way Brothers. Not only do they just remind me of me and Jay 10 years ago because they're literally just like us, um, but, you know, for me to be fulfilled in that project, I didn't have to have my hands all over it and feel like I needed creative control. What what I needed to be fulfilled there was to fill in whatever gaps these young, inspired, incredibly intelligent filmmakers needed, whatever I could offer by my extra 10 years of experience in the industry. And it turned out to be not that much because yeah. they're fucking awesome at what they do. I gave them a creative space to work inside of our office. Um, I gave them access to all the other filmmakers that work around so they could like test scenes on them and test footage on them. You know, I gave them a little bit of advice about how to approach certain interview subjects that they weren't able to get. Um, I helped them a little bit structure some of the nature of what the episodes would be, but they really kind of had it down. And I gave them full creative protection in our deal with Netflix so that I was their boss as opposed to Netflix being their boss so yeah. that I could like help guide them. And Jason, where did you, when did you become aware of them and how did that, did they come to you or did you go to them? When they you came, saw they came to me, their sales agent and them, they were, they were fans of ours and they were trying to take the project out and sell it and they couldn't sell it, which is just bananas. Cause I know everybody right now is just like, Oh, why didn't I buy it? Um, and Josh Braun, who is uh, a guy who sold tons of my movies and he's kind of the, the godfather of documentary sales came to me and he knows how much I like docs, but we haven't made a lot of them. And he said, Hey, you know, I got the way brothers. I had seen their first documentary, the battered bastards of baseball on Netflix, which is incredible. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. Um, it's like the true story of major league. It's like an independent minor league baseball team. It's like a bunch of fuck ups basically, but they start winning and they start embarrassing all the major league triple a teams. So the major leaguers start dropping down their main players into AAA to try and beat this independent team, and they're still getting their asses kicked. It's incredible. Wow. I mean, got to see it. So I, I knew I loved them as filmmakers. Um, and and speaking truly candidly, the the real thing that I needed to do on that was get this movie sold in a way that protected the guys to do what they wanted to do. It needed my name and curation to do that. Um, and then I did about seven or eight other small, maybe critical, but small things along the way for them. Um, and in that regard, I became kind of a grandfather (laughs) to the projects. So there's like the uncle acting mode. There's like me previously being a dad, like togetherness where I'm doing everything, killing myself. And now this like kind of grandfather mode of just like, 
let me offer the soft guidance and a couple of old grandpa's wisdom, <laughs> yeah. like here and there. Um, but when you get really talented young artists, you know, like in particular the Way Brothers, you know, and, and a lot of these filmmakers that are higher for Room 104 now, you yeah. know, um, that's been really wonderful because as a producer, as a writer, I can be more nine to five, you know, I can be home with my kids and, yeah. and really experience that. So, and I feel like we shift. talked about that, which is one of my, one of my questions It was kind of along with that time management is you, you seem, well, you've told me you're ruthless with your yeah. time management and you have a routine, which, uh, it's funny because, you know, you're very kind of like, you're in a t-shirt, right. you're scruffy and mm-hmm. everything. Oh, he's just, you know, he's like this artist who's doing, but you're I very- I look like Shaggy from Scooby-Doo. You're, you're very deliberate, it seems <laughs> yeah, like, in your, yeah. in your rituals, your work rituals. And if you were, uh, you know, on the macro level, we talked about go do, make your own movies. You're telling that 14-year-old, what do you tell him day to day? Like, yeah. what is it that you, how do you accomplish- as much as you do, is it the delegating? Is yeah, it the- yeah, it's a it's a combination of a ton of different things. Um, you know, on the macro level, it's it's one hundred percent the delegating. Yeah. Um, the first question that I think you should ask yourself, and it took me many years to ask myself this question, is um, if you are the leader of something, like you are the leader of your podcast, if you are the leader of a startup. Um, the first question is, um, what are the very unique skills that only you have to offer? And you got to hold on to those for a long time. So myself, when I'm really honest with myself, I like to act, write, direct, and produce. I like doing all of those things, okay? As an actor, I'm, I think I'm really good. I am replaceable. There are lots of other people who can do the job that I do. They'll do it a little bit better, a little bit worse, but roughly speaking, in the zone, right? Yeah. Okay, that's not something I have to do. Take that out of the equation. As a director, I'm really, really good at what I do. That being said, if there's good material... I do think that I am replaceable, plus or minus, somebody will get there. I can take that out of the equation. As a writer, the guy who takes a script from 80% to 100% really like finesses it. I'm actually not that good at that. It's such an easy thing for me to take out of the equation. But the guy who can sit down and write a really good first draft of a script that is essentially 80% of what it's supposed to be, that's my sweet spot. Nobody can do, and I can say this confidently, what I can do at a computer without an outline yet and in a week come up with what I can come up with. Now, I know this is part of it's God-given, but I'm asking because we've had this. That's like the word. I'm the opposite. How <laughs> most do you, people are most the opposite. Are, what is it you think? And maybe you can't even describe it because it's just so inherently mm-hmm. you. If you could put your finger on it, what is it that allows you to do that, to just <laughs> This is crazy, uh, but I think the most important thing is that at a key, you know, you you learn languages when you're younger and you learn them better than when you're older. At a key developmental time for me and my interest as a viewer, I watched my favorite movies about a hundred times. The the repeat viewings that I did of Karate Kid and Top Gun and Fletch, that built a DNA of inherent story structure inside of my body. And so when I sit down now, almost everything I write is in some way mirroring a sequence from Romancing the Stone or a sequence from Karate Kid without even thinking about it. Yeah. My body knows it's time for a fast scene. It's time for a slow scene. It's time for the scene where the old guy gives a drop of wisdom. It's time for the fight scene. I mean, I just know it. Yeah. And I think that's the most pivotal part of it. You know, I'm a big consumer of books and everything else. And I went to film school and I think that's 
part of it. But I, I really do think that that intrinsic take your f- favorite movie, watch it a hundred times, yeah. and you will you will ingrain that structure in your body. And it's 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 like when I'm writing, bells are going all off inside of my body about that's wrong, that's wrong, that's right, that's right. It's it's like. It's um, it sounds so corny when people say this, but it's like I'm a conduit. Yeah, you know? it's no, like I'm summoning this. That, thing. That's when I'm at my best. Is that? Yeah. That's what it is. It's it's the, the pacing. I feel mm-hmm. fine with. I think there's just. You seem to have this ability to to not self judge while I don't you're, judge myself. while you're throwing it out. I don't because now I've, I'm, I'm I'm experienced enough to know that it will get there. And the reason I don't judge myself is because, I'm not perfect, and I I cannot get a script there on my own. Every script that has the name Mark Duplass on it has been read by at least five people who have weighed in with massive notes that have been game changers in making that script the way it is. So I, as confident as I am in my ability to get to 80, I have zero confidence in my ability to get to 100, and I've learned to accept that. I need help. Some people don't. Fuck those guys. I don't know who those (laughs) people are. You know, like the Coen brothers have something. I don't know what they're doing. But uh, so, for instance, with Room 104, I write uh, at least half of the scripts, sometimes more of them, you know, because I'm, I can barf out a half hour draft or, or like a 30 minute draft. I can sometimes do it in a half hour and it's really good. And then what? I, and then I bring in people yeah, and they say this, 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 and we fix it. And, and, and so that is one of my unique skill sets back to the time management. I can't let that go because that is a, a foundation of our business. Okay. Uh, now, another thing is as a producer, Putting together projects with other people's material and casting them, tons of people know how to do that better than I do. As a person who knows how to like sit with you, for instance, and like know you and your spirit and have a sense of what you're good at and say, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to make a $2,500 movie with you starring in this role that's about what's going on with you and Deirdre, but also what's going on with your friend and their thing. And we can shoot it in your basement and you have the SUV, right? And we'll shoot it in your car and we'll do it here. Nobody, not just say nobody. I have a, I have a special um, ability to crack small micro-budgeted producerial models that are financially sustainable and creatively fulfilling. And so I got to stay there. That's my special spot. So th- literally those two things, the huh. first vomit draft and the creative production model cracker guy. <laughs> like yeah. I have to keep those two. And everything else, if I have extra time and I want to do them, for instance, when my kids go to college, I'll probably start directing and acting more. But right now, like not not so much. Yeah. So I can be nine to five now because I'm just honing in on my special skills. And then everything else is delegated to someone in the company. Okay. I- Love that. I like that's like that's the gold for me. And now, what about before when when you guys were young, when you didn't have anybody to delegate to? Yeah. So you're talking. I killed myself. You killed yourself. I just destroyed myself. And honestly, like I got I had a nervous breakdown practically by the time I was 28, pressuring myself to capitalize on the puffy chair and, and, you know, really make, make our mark. And I was, you know, writing all night, trying to get scripts and throwing them out because they weren't good. And, and I just, I'm, I can't say I regret it because part of revving and running that engine so hard for so long has allowed me to be in the somewhat coast mode that I am now. So I'm guess I'm glad I did it, but like I did some physical and emotional damage to myself in that process that I'm like, I got to live with now. Um, 
So I would just say if you're thinking of building something, if you could sooner get to the place of uh, therapy and, and analyzing what your skill sets are and not feeling bad about what you're not an ace at and, and realizing that doesn't make you less valuable. Um, if you are really, really great at one thing and one small sliver of things and you're smart enough to surround yourself with people who can fulfill the rest of those things, you're extremely valuable, you know? And I didn't get that early on. I thought I needed to like do it all to, to be good, to feel good, you know? And being a little older and a little more experienced now to just be like, I, I, I can't, I can't finesse a script. I can't do it. I'm not good at it. You know? Yeah. I, uh, I don't know lenses. I'm not good visually. I need a cinematographer like Doug who I just, I'm not defensive about it anymore. I don't try to like pretend. I just walk in and I just say, Doug, tell me what it should look like because I'm not good at that. And and that emboldens people and empowers yeah. them. That's they, what I thought Larry they, Trilling did so well, was he gave everybody the power oh, to bring their own great, gift to great, the table. You know? yeah. It takes a while to figure that out. You know, it took me just getting beat down, honestly. You know? um, and, it's, and it's ultimately, I really do believe it, you will, you will get a better product out of it. You yeah. know? Um, I, I want to talk to you for a long, a long time, <laughs> but I know you, uh, you know, we're approaching the hour mark. So you've got a, a book coming out, mm-hmm. uh, called like brothers with Jay, your brother, mm-hmm. the, the famous Duplass brothers. And, um, what can you tell us that people could, could find in there and why should they go get it? Obviously, if, if anybody's yeah. gotten this far into the interview, they know that you got gems. But- it's interesting. I mean, the, the, Writing a book was new. You know, it was like picking up a guitar when I was 13. I was trying to figure it out. I loved that process. And um, we wanted this book to be a bunch of different things, and we weren't sure that they were all going to gel. Um, and no one has read it yet. It hasn't come out yet, so I don't really know what's going to happen with it. But, you know, what I wanted this book to be was uh, for filmmakers who are curious about how we did it and how we came from nothing and those specific widgets of how they might do it and learn from our story, that's in there. I wanted it to be a larger think piece about uh, where collaboration fits in any relationship, you know? Um, and Jay's and my specific desire to be as close as we possibly can to get the power of the two of us and also at times say, get the fuck away from me because I cannot breathe and I need to do my own thing. Um, and how that happens on a daily basis with us and how we manage to deal with that. Um, and then I think that something odd started to happen when we started to show people chapters of the book and I fell into this and chased it more, which was people didn't react to any of that stuff the way I thought they would. The number one reaction when I started showing chapters was... Do guys in North America really talk to each other this way? Are you really that understanding and loving and supportive and sweet to your brother when you fight? Because the way Jay and I fight, it's kind of a joke sometimes. I mean, it's (laughs) like we are – if you and I were me and Jay in a fight right now, we would be equally as concerned with the other's agenda as or the, as my own. I would be arguing Jay's against myself sometimes because I care for him that deeply. Yeah. And and people started looking at it and they started saying this is 
crazy. And what's wrong with the boys in our country right now where they can't express themselves and they're walking into places and shooting people to death and they don't know what to do with themselves. And, and I just didn't understand that it was, I knew we were a little different, but I didn't understand it was that sort of unique, you know? Um, And so in some ways it's, it's become unintentionally this model of male intimacy and how to express yourself and not to feel like you're not a man and you're like some kind of what my Southern friends would have called me in the nineties fucking pussy for talking to another boy like that, you know? Um, so that was a really unexpected thing that has come out of it and has been starting to come up as a talking point of the book, you know? Um, and that's been really fun. You know, you write something, you think you know what it's about, and then all of a sudden people take it in some other way. Yeah. Well, it's yeah. like what you said about, you know, just being sustainable and having all of these different projects. You don't know which one is going to hit. Yeah, why? And you don't know why it's going to hit. Yeah. You know, is that because of the times today? Is it because people are I remember to, you know? when that book Hillbilly Elegy came out, and it was just the story of a boy growing up uh, in the middle of America, and then it it posthumously became about this is why Trump got elected because it's representing the disillusionment of basically like white middle, lower class, middle of America. He didn't really plan on writing that. that. He just, it just happened. And, and, and I've looked back on my work and I've looked at these movies that I've made, like, like Cyrus and the dodecapentathlon and Jeff lives at home. And they've all been me and Jay slowly, but surely working our shit out over the course of our movies. Um, but they all, the friendship and togetherness, they all deal with male intimacy in this unique way that Jay and I understand it. Um, and it's yeah. been an odd little spike on the book that I'm curious about. Yeah. 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 It makes it because I, I thought of it not knowing that part. I was thinking it'll translate to, you know, beyond the filmmaking world because it's it's also a book about business. I mean, yeah. you're, you guys are successful entrepreneurs that anybody in any field can learn from. But that's you know, now like a family book too. Yeah, exactly. The, there's a definite uh, part of the collaboration aspect that is, and we talk about it in the book too, about being in a healthy marriage because that's really the way Jay and I look at it. We are in a marriage, yeah. you know. Um, we're trying to keep a whole system afloat. The business is our family and we got to be good to the to the kids and we got to be good to each other. But how do we good to the kids and keep the sex life alive? You know, yeah, like, yeah. It's, it's all the same shit that we're dealing with. Um and I'm just, I don't know, I'm the kind of person that, I don't know if everyone is like this, but I um, I meet people, I get excited, I want to know them, I'm interested in them, and I just have an intense desire for intimacy. And and I get myself into trouble because I get really, really close, and then you realize, like, shit, how are we going to make this sustainable? Because now it's really complex, you yeah. know? Um, and I think that the larger think piece of what does it mean to successfully collaborate with someone and get the best out of them and you and what your alchemy is together, um, yet still allow yourself some sort of space to breathe is impossible to get right, is what Jay and I have discovered. And it requires like constant monitoring. I mean, I can't tell you how many times we sit in this room and have like a three-hour chat about like, What's going on with this? Why were you acting weird about that? I'm sorry I did that. Let's yeah. try and figure out how to make this system work better. We're not working together closely enough. We're, we're too close on this. We need some separation. You know, it is like constant 
management. And it's probably more, in general, more volatile for brothers, but in a way, there's a safety net of, you will always be brother. You are blood, and there's no, you know, because collabor- collaborations with with friends, you get into you business can leave. with them, yeah. and, 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 it's, and it's dangerous yeah. because you have different goals and you have different Yeah, we're not going anywhere. Yeah. And, the, and part of the key, and this is what was part of the interesting journey of the book, is that I think when we started it, we thought it was going to be more of a manifesto or a treatise on the power of collaboration overall. And the more we dug into it, we started to realize kind of those sharp edges that make it difficult. Um, and, and quite frankly, we were, we were just going through some things personally with, uh, the death of togetherness that made us realize that maybe some space might be a healthy thing. Yeah. And that was terrifying to us to examine. And it was kind of happening while we were writing the book. So it, it changed a little bit, you know, it is, it's now a little bit more about, whoa, this is really, really complex. But, um, but I think worth it when you find someone you know to stick in and um but yeah it's uh i'm it's still almost fresh you know i still find myself almost a little nervous about you know what people are going to take because i think sometimes people idealize what jay and i are you know and they look and they're like oh you guys are just lucky you really like each other and, and it worked out for you and this book is not that you know it's yeah uh, no i'm sure it's complex and it's got to be yeah. filled with you know uh fights and arguments <laughs> and all that yeah. but you also seem to have collaborated with you you you're talking about the mentorship you've collaborated with your wife katie yes. many times yeah uh, you know you have uh that's a part of your i would say one of your unique skills yeah it seems it, it's you, what i you love can play nice with others is yeah what it yeah and i and i just really really love it you know and um i've i've i have found that like in this industry for whatever reason um maybe it's this way when you get in other industries i just don't know but there's just a selfishness you know there's just generally People are on self here. This is my vision. What do I look like when I show up on camera? What does my movie look like when it's done? And and the element of collaboration, in particular, the element of mentoring. When I see people, I mean, when I see people who are like 25 and struggling, not only do I feel like I can help, I feel like I should because I I literally have survivor's guilt of like, oh my god, I don't want him to have to or her to go through what I did, you know. Yeah. Um, and it and it helps to ameliorate. For me, spiritually, being in an industry of that is really on self, you know. Yeah. We're at fifty nine, fifty four. Okay. I think this is boom. We're gonna go, and, go down at, at an hour and see. Scene. Thank you, man. Thank you so much <laughs> yeah, for, for doing this with me. I appreciate it. Uh, like Brothers is coming out. It's Random House. Yeah. Published and uh, May eighth is. It's two days, dr- it's two days ago date. from when this will have dropped. And there's an audiobook version, too. I think a lot of people have been asking me about that for whatever reason. Oh, really? Like, I'm not as much of an audiobook person. The but two of you? Jay and I read the book together, and, and, and for some reason, I think that has sparked a lot of interest for people. So, That's going to yeah. be good. Yeah. Thank you, brother. Awesome, man. Thanks again for listening to 10,000 No's. If you haven't subscribed to us yet, please do. So each week's episode is automatically downloaded to your computer or phone. And if you like what you heard, please help us get the word out by sharing it with your friends and family. We'll see you next week. Thanks. Thanks.